Hi, this is Jesse with Red Cloaks Radio. Joined today as co-host with Karen Rose from Boston Red Cloaks. And Laura Venesey from the Boston Red Cloaks. And welcome to our special guest today, Adrian Ramcharan, who is from Jane Doe Inc. Good morning, Adrian. Good morning, everyone. Thanks for having me. We have so much to discuss and learn from you today. We are state statewide organizations. Can you share with us a big picture of what Jane Doe Inc. does? Sure. So like you mentioned, we're a statewide organization. And so Jane Doe is the Massachusetts Coalition to End Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence. And so we now have 59 member programs. And so our members are made up of um, sexual and domestic violence programs located throughout the Commonwealth. And so we have um, community-based providers, hospital-based providers, um, domestic violence shelters, some culturally and um, linguistically specific service providers as well. Um, and we really cover, our membership really covers the entire state from Western Mass all the way to Boston, the Vineyard, the Cape. Um, so we, we really cover a wide, our membership really covers a wide, wide range over the state. Um, in terms of the work that Jane Doe does, we have what I like to think of as sort of different departments. So our communications and outreach um, and development folks, which we are so grateful to them. They are the reason why you see us on social media and everywhere else. Um, they really do such an incredible job of sharing a lot of the other work that we do at Jane Doe. So our membership engagement and education and training folks, they really put together a lot of different webinars that we hold throughout the year that's um, always open to members. Some are also open to the public, which range on a number of different issues that impact um, victims and survivors of SDV. Um, and I'll use SDV as an acronym for sexual assault and domestic violence. Um, and they do just so much work. I know we have a webinar series coming up on healthcare and healthcare for survivors um, of sexual assault and domestic violence. We pre previously had a webinar series on housing for sexual, sexual assault and sexual violence survivors. Um, so it kind of changes. There's sort of themes that happen throughout the year where we'll hold different, different webinars on that. Um, and then there's the policy department and we do from state legislation, Massachusetts, we're also fortunate to have state funding for our SDV programs. Um, and so we do some advocacy to make sure there's sufficient funding in, in the state budget for our programs. And then we also do some systems advocacy. So we're fortunate to have a relationship with some of the different state agencies um, and, and work with them as well to, to make changes and to make it better for survivors. What, would the, what are those uh, uh, agencies? Sure, so for example, the budget that I mentioned or the funding in the state budget is housed at DPH, the Department of Public Health. Um, and so we're fortunate to have a good relationship with um, that department within DPH who holds the funding for sexual and domestic violence. Um, so we have a really great working relationship with them, not just on policy and budget, but they also engage with our membership engagement and our education and training folks. Um, we also have a working relationship with the folks at the Executive Office of Health and Human Services. Um, so the sort of larger umbrella that DPH sits in. Um, they are primarily the state agencies that, that we work with, um, but also recognizing that um, survivor services sit in a number of different agencies. We can talk about DHCD, so the Department of Housing and Community Development. Um, they also have, they hold some housing funding, um, which are resources that survivors might access or choose to access, need to access. Yeah. Um, 
EOPS, the Executive Office of Public Safety and Security. I might be getting that wrong. Um, <laughs> they, Massachusetts just created the SART um, sexual response, sexual assault tracking kit um, system. So like that sits in the Office of EOPS. So um, as we go forward in this conversation, we are really mindful and thinking about people who are listening who themselves may be survivors or have been connected to someone who is a survivor. If someone's listening and they need support right now, what can they do? So Massachusetts has a statewide hotline, which is SafeLink. And so you can call SafeLink to get help and they can also connect you to local resources in your community. Um, so the phone number for SafeLink is 1-877-785-2020. And you can also go to the Jane Doe website. So it's janedoe.org slash find help. And you can put in your zip code or your address and it will pull up all of the programs who are in your local area. Um, and for and it people- will up, It will pull up um, sexual assault programs as well as domestic violence programs. And for people who are listening who may be aware of a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, where you feel that there may be violence taking place, these are also places you can turn to find ways that you can direct the person that you're concerned about. Great, thank you so much for that helpful information. So COVID has changed everything, right? And um, I just was very curious to see how that's changed, you know, what you're advocating for, like the healthcare issues, and this is a multifaceted question, but um, healthcare advocacy, maybe usage of your organization, just tell us a little bit about how, how that's made it harder for people and, and, um, and what you're seeing. Yeah, I'm happy to talk about that. I mean, so I will say, I just want to say up front, Jane Doe does not provide direct services. Um, it's our membership organizations that are, that are the direct care service providers. But we, at the start of COVID, we started having weekly meetings with all of our programs, um, or at least open to all of our programs so that we could hear and learn from them to sort of exactly what you're getting to, Laura, um, what's happening out there and what can we be doing to respond to survivors and really what we saw or what our programs really saw at first was that at the start of the pandemic and really at the start of the shutting down of businesses was that and with the stay-at-home order is that survivors were now quarantining with the person who's causing them harm um, and with the closure of businesses non-essential businesses there was then no place for survivors to, to go to, especially if their place of work was closed, um, if they weren't able to work from home, there was then this added layer of isolation, right? On top of the violence they might be experiencing at home. So what program saw was actually a decline in request for services. Mm. Um, you know, not being able to get in contact with clients that they were currently working with sometimes. Um, and that was obviously concerning because we know it wasn't just, okay, there's no more sexual violence or domestic violence happening in the state anymore, but really that there wasn't a safe space now for survivors and victims to reach out to get those services. Um, and so really through a lot of part, this is one example where a partnership came in with the Lieutenant Governor 
um, and Governor Baker and having them being able to share the SafeLink hotline number in press conferences that they were giving quite frequently at the start of, of the pandemic to get that information out there to let folks know that these services are open and they're operating. They might be providing services remotely right now, but you can still call. Right. Um, advocates were going out to survivors and you know physically meeting them where they were at if they couldn't leave leave their location. Um, and in terms of how that sort of affected our advocacy, um, part of that was just getting the information out there was was that outreach at first, and then as as folks saw that information. Um, <laughs> publicly spread, then programs started to see folks calling again. And so that actually became a benefit that folks were then able to reach out again um, and really do some unique safety planning with survivors as well. Um, a lot of thought went into all of these programs and I just have to commend all of them right now because the resiliency of going from going to your office every day to then all of a sudden being told that you are working from home and being able to turn all of these services online, the rate that they did it at is just, is incredible. And it needs, it needs to be commended. Um, and I speak a little bit to, you know, legislation that we started um, supporting, I think anything the legislature really turned to a lot of COVID related legislation and policies. And so, you know, we tend to look at our policy work around education prevention, racial justice, economic justice, um, human rights, and then sort of larger systems change that I, I talked about some of the systems partners that we work with. Um, but looking at what's happening in that, in that space that we can support. So for example, the, the moratorium on evictions um, and foreclosures, that was obviously a piece of legislation that we supported, um, wrote testimony for, sent letters for, to make sure that that was able to get in place. Because we know that survivors already have difficulty accessing housing and then if you are in housing, we wanna make sure that, that you stay there and that you're able to have that safe place to be. And that's just one example of legislation. We've followed as the moratorium was put in place and then also watched as people desperately tried to have it extended in recent days and yet it hasn't been extended. So how is, um, how is Jane Doe responding but also how would you have us respond if we wanna be helpful at this point? That's a really good question. Um, so Jane Doe was a part of those efforts, of course, to get the moratorium extended beyond its deadline. Um, I think fortunately, we haven't heard from programs of survivors who are being immediately evicted or anything like that um, since the moratorium was lifted. But we certainly have stories beforehand where survivors were worried about that and scared about what might happen, particularly immigrant survivors um, who who might be afraid of being kicked out of their apartment or if they were living with another family member, what that might look like if the landlord no longer allowed that. Um, I think something that we as Jane Doe are trying to do also is sort of largely address um, the, the larger housing issue, I think in Massachusetts. And we know that there's a, a lack of affordable housing in Massachusetts and it's a lot harder to try and figure out, okay, how can we build more housing and just create more spaces for people to live? So we're really trying to learn more about, and this is definitely a learning process for us as well, about what housing resources are out there for survivors and what are they currently benefiting from and how can we invest more into that as well? 
Um, so looking at what are the resources that programs point survivors to and what are the ones that are working for survivors um, and how can we bolster those, um, those services for survivors as well. Two things you raised there that are striking are one, that there is the mental health component for survivors. Anyone who's a victim of trauma is going to carry mental health scars and baggage with them. And for them to not be secure about what's gonna come next is very difficult. The other part is if we lived in a state where everybody was aware that if you were in danger, you could leave and there's always a place for you to go, we might become aware of more people who are actually victims because they would step forward if they felt secure that there was a place to go. Until we have that secure network, it's really difficult to know exactly how many people are feeling trapped because they, they don't think there's an alternative. And to that end, it would help if you are aware of the number of people or just rough statistics about how many people um, are actually turning to you, to your organization, or are, are experiencing violence at this point, and also if, if they have children that they are taking care of as well. I mean, I don't have specific numbers in terms of, you know, how many people are turning to our service providers in the state. But what I can say is anecdotally, throughout the COVID crisis, programs have seen an increase in requests for shelter services. Um, and we can get into a conversation around the shelter system as well in that it's become a place where folks are staying a lot longer than they maybe plan to or intended to or or want to because there is no where to go then. There is no affordable housing or the housing options that are available, the wait lists for them are so long also. Um, so even for survivors who are trying to access shelter, it can be really difficult. Um, we have a listserv that our member programs can use to sort of share information if they're looking for, for shelter for a survivor to kind of get information on who has an opening. And we've seen that listserv be used more and more often as well during during the, the pandemic. And I would say even, even more so a little more recently. Um, so there's definitely a, a need for housing largely in Massachusetts. I would like to talk about um, the Roe Act, the Massachusetts Roe Act. And I'd like to know, Adrian, um, uh, how, how would, how would, well, let me start this way. How is the fact that we don't have the Roe Act um, passed at this point, how do those omissions affect uh, survivors? It's a really good question. I think there are so many components to the Roe Act. And so to speak kind of largely to what it's trying to do. And it's right there in the name. It's really about removing the obstacles and the barriers to abortion care. Um, and for me, the connection to SDV, well, we know there's, a, there's an intersection between the people who seek abortion care and the people who have experienced sexual and domestic violence. That's one, one connection. Absolutely. But speaking even broader to just the, the the issues in terms of having barriers to abortion care. When you look at relationships that have violence in them, there's often a power and control to that relationship. The person who is the one causing harm is taking away some of the autonomy of the person experiencing that violence. And when you look at the state creating additional barriers to abortion care, to a healthcare service, 
that's another power method of power and control and another way of taking away an individual's autonomy. Um, so I think if we are able to remove the barriers or those additional barriers to abortion care, we're helping to give individuals back some of that autonomy to make those decisions about what to do with their body. Um, and I think also we're making healthcare itself more accessible, not just abortion care, but for some survivors, the idea that, you know, there are these hoops or these obstacles that I have to get through before I can access abortion, that itself might be a trigger to, to a survivor, um, depending on what their personal experience is. So if we can help to remove um, barriers to abortion care, I think we're also helping to remove barriers to a whole host of healthcare services in general. Do you think that we've um, missed the boat on some of that advocacy? It just seems like that I haven't heard a lot about that argument, which is a solid one. Um, and I, I haven't heard that um, as much come up with the advocacy for the Roe Act passing. I don't wanna say we've missed the boat on anything. I think there's <laughs> definitely still an opportunity for us to talk about that. Yeah. Um, I'll say in, in Jane Doe in our presentation to legislators about the Roe Act and a testimony that we've submitted, that's certainly something that we raised from our perspective um, and how we approach the, the Roe Act or our perspective on why Massachusetts needs the Roe Act. Um, I think it's something we should continue to raise as well, the idea of bodily autonomy um, as we push for this legislation. Yeah, absolutely. So the other day we were interviewing Jamie Klops from the uh, National Association of uh, Social Workers and we were talking about the Me Too movement and how uh, that's it's it's just sort of taken a dip or a backseat to some of the other issues and you mentioned that before there's always like you know top issues COVID has taken over so many um, of our other issues including the Roe Act but um, what do you what do you what are your thoughts about that and, and how um, that's maybe affected the, um, the work that you do at Jane Doe? So I'll say that I came to Jane Doe just over a year and a half ago. So I came while the Me Too movement had already started and we were kind of, seems like at the height of it at least. Um, you know, I agree that with media coverage, it ebbs and flows. It's kind of whatever the hot topic is. Um, I think being in this work, we can never lose sight of the Me Too mo movement. And when I think of that as well, I think largely um, uplifting the issues of sexual assault and domestic violence, um, lifting them up as public health issues as well. And Jane Doe's approach also is not just to look at how can we address sexual violence and domestic violence kind of from a very narrow point, but looking broader at what are the, what helps to create a system or a society where sexual violence and domestic violence are allowed to flourish and grow. Um, so we really try to look at things also from the perspective of economic justice. What can we do around education and prevention and, you know, educating our young people so that we can prevent sexual violence later in life. Um, looking at it from a racial justice standpoint as well. Um, 
even looking at COVID right now, if we look at the communities that are most impacted in Massachusetts, um, you know, what are the demographic makeups of those communities? How does that fit into racial justice? And then how does that tie, tie into sexual and domestic violence? Um, I think there's always a thread that can be weaved through any sort of popular topic that's being talked about um, and a connection to SDV. In, re in regard to that, you uh, hit on a question that I wanted to, <clears throat> to ask, and that is the education of men and boys. And can you talk to us about the White Ribbon Day? Sure, I can speak a little bit about that. Um, so White Ribbon Day is sort of a larger campaign that we do throughout the year in terms of engaging men and boys. And so we have sort of a kickoff event in March. Um, and it's really about bringing men and boys and male identified folks into the conversation about ending domestic violence and ending sexual violence. Um, and it really culminates at the end of the year in December. Um, unfortunately, we won't get to have an in-person conference this year, it will be online, um, but a, a larger symposium where we bring um, a lot of folks together and there's really a focus on youth and our membership engagement folks have done a tremendous job creating relationships with um, a couple of different local schools throughout the state who normally we would all bring physically to, to the event, but we'll have online this year um, to talk about what does it look like to redefine masculinity um, and healthy masculinity. Um, we're so often presented with images and social media and pop culture around toxic masculinity. So really taking the time to, to have a conversation about what it could look like to, to bring male identified folks into this conversation about ending SDV. So Adrian, if, if people wanna find you, how do they do that? So if folks are interested in learning more about Jane Doe, you can go to our website, which is janedoe.org. Um, if folks are interested in finding out about resources for sexual assault and domestic violence and service providers in their community, they can go to janedoe.org slash find underscore help um, on our website. And there we have a map of all of the service providers in the state. And you can also put in your um, zip code or your address and it will give you all of the local programs who are in your area. People want to uh, help Jane Doe Inc. Uh, financially to make donations to support your work. How, how do they do that? Yes, if folks are interested in donating directly to us at Jane Doe, they can also go to our website at janedoe.org slash donate. And like I said, you can go find out who your local providers are mm -hmm. at janedoe.org slash find underscore help. Great. I just also want to highlight the, um, the section on your website that is about volunteering because it's awesome. You just push the button, volunteer, and, and you can choose whether you want to do it as a group or an individual, and there's lots of opportunities on there. So thanks. Thank you. What groups do you feel like we should be paying more attention to and finding holistic ways to be supportive? That's a really great question. I believe I mentioned earlier that some of our member programs are culturally specific um, service providers as well. Um, and I, I won't name all of them just in case I forget anyone. Um, but I think especially if you look at COVID right now, for example, if we look at the communities that are being impacted in those areas, we're looking at our Black and Latino or Latinx um, and our immigrant communities really 
Um, so I think especially supporting those communities right now, I know that programs who are in those areas um, are doing a lot of work with the survivors that, that they currently work with or are requesting services right now. Um, I'll speak sort of to the experience of one program who I've had the opportunity to hear a lot from who, who do work with immigrant survivors. Um, not only are survivors dealing with their own survivorship um, and everything that comes with that, but also dealing with if they themselves have had COVID, if they have family members who have had COVID, if they are supporting um, or are the primary provider for their family unit. Um, I think there's there's a lot more strain on those the individuals in those communities um, that have been added um, on top of their survivorship with COVID happening right now. The kind of compassion that you bring is so welcome. We really appreciate your taking time to speak with us now. And we know that we have members who are survivors and we've certainly been out and protested and had survivors come up and share their stories with us. And knowing that in Massachusetts, there's a number to call and there are people across the state so that there's, there is help. We want to get that word out. And so that people who might suspect someone is in danger can step up and be an active bystander and offer that phone number, point out the website and do whatever we can do to make sure that no one is left alone to manage a very um, unfair and impossible problem. Thank you so much for the work you do and for being with us. Yes, thank you very much. It's been very, very important education we're getting this morning. Good luck. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You're quite welcome. Thank you.